Hey, if you're a guest, I want to reiterate what was said earlier. We're glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome you to stop by out here in our front lobby, our welcome center, and pick up a gift. It's got information about our church, how to get connected, how to find out uh, what you want to know about New Hope. You can stop right there and pick that up. Um, also, a good way to get connected around here is if you jump on our website and uh, you can follow New Hope on social media. And when you do that, you can um, kind of stay up to date. We try to keep that as updated as possible. That's another way just to stay connected here uh, with the information that we're passing along throughout the church. So if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. If you call this place home and you've been here for a while, you know that we just finished up our REACH um, initiative series, and we're getting ready to start our REACH initiative. And so last week was really cool having the boxes up front and watching everybody make their commitment and come and, and make that offering to this REACH initiative. And we were humbled by that, and we're very excited about all that God's doing through that. Um, and this week is another opportunity. Maybe your spouse wasn't here or you couldn't make it last week, and or maybe as a family, you've been praying about that commitment. I want to encourage you, you can still turn in uh, your REACH commitment card, and the, the boxes are right available outside this way and right when you're leaving that way. Um, again, we're just pumped about all that God's doing. With that, I want to give you two dates to mark on your um, calendars. One is uh, May 1st, which is next week, right? On May the 1st, um, we are starting our REACH initiative. So it's our REACH start day. What that means is if you made a commitment... May 1st is when we start giving to the REACH initiative. It's also when you bring your one-time gift to help us with the construction part uh, to get started with that part of the REACH initiative. You would bring that um, with you as well on the 1st. On the 8th, it's for those that aren't here, we do that again. And then the next date I want you to mark on your calendars is uh, May the 15th. Uh, May the 15th is what we're calling Celebration Sunday, and I'd like to actually call it Celebration Weekend. We're going to have an incredible weekend on the 14th and 15th here on our campus. We've got Justin's Run for Hope on the 14th, uh, Hope Fest, and we're going to have so many people on our campus and an incredible opportunity to meet people, to talk to them, and to get an opportunity to share Jesus with them. Follow that by Sunday the 15th, and we're going to celebrate all that the Lord does through this REACH initiative and all uh, the results of that initiative, that portion of the initiative, as we get started um, changing some things around here building-wise. So we're, we're pumped, we're excited. Uh, but I'm more excited to preach, and we're starting a new series today. So I'm done talking about that, and I want to get into the passage here in just a minute. So if you have a Bible, we're starting a new series, and I'm pretty excited about this series. Um, it's through the life of the Apostle Paul. And this series goes in conjunction with our VBS. Now, VBS means Vacation Bible School. It's this thing we do here every year at the church. We've, last year, we had over 400 kids, uh, Monday through Friday, June 6th to the 10th this year. You can come and... Uh, Actually, we'd like you to sign up if you're coming. Uh, that would help. So register your kids or register to volunteer. We can always use more volunteers um, on our campus. What we found out the curriculum for VBS was called Walk This Way. And they were going to be studying the life of Paul. And we thought, well, man, I want to, let's preach through that. And so starting today all the way to VBS, we're going to be preaching through the life of the Apostle Paul. We start today in Acts chapter 9 uh, with Paul's conversion to Christ. We're going to walk through that. Um, but I want to go ahead and pray for us before we get started. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your presence with us. God, thanks for all that you're doing um, in our lives. Thank you that we have your word. And so, God, my prayer, uh, though we come from different experiences, some of us good, some of us difficult weeks, uh, we're all here right now, God. And, and my prayer is simple. Would you teach us something from your word? Uh, maybe it's just one thing that we latch onto today, that when we walk out of here, we can remember that and we can apply it. And God, would we be faithful to do so? And so, God, would you change us? As we leave here, could we be different uh, than when we arrived. And we offer you this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me ask you a question. Uh, it's kind of hard to answer, uh, but it's fun to ask. Okay? Do you remember uh, the last time that you were on an adventure? What you would call an adventure. You're like, no, Rob, I'm not three. I don't remember, right? But the last time you feel like you went on an adventure, okay, uh, what did it feel like? What did you experience? What did you go through when you would say, I was on an adventure uh, when I did this? Uh, the first time I remember being on an adventure that didn't involve a Nerf gun in my backyard because I was a little kid and I had to have my imagination. The first time I experienced something where I actually felt like I'm actually on an adventure. Like, this is incredible. I was a high school senior. And I'd just become a Christian, and a few months later, I would leave for Bible college. And in between, I was really involved in this youth group. Um, and they took a trip to a CIY conference, and on the way, uh, they stopped to do this activity. And so I'm like, okay, I'll go to this conference. They said, hey, bring clothes that you don't want to keep. Bring an outfit that you just don't want to keep. And I thought, are you serious? Yes, I signed up. I'm, I'm in on that. So we stop in Alabama, coming from Florida, and we stop, and they go caving. And I thought, okay, we're going caving. So this means you, you walk into this giant hole in the side of like a mountain or something, and when you get in, you get to look at different things, and you're caving. They're like, no, that's not what we're doing. I said, okay, well, what are we doing? And we, we get there, and they say, hey, you can do that, where you can do the caving where you're upright the whole time and you're walking. Or if you're not a little girl, you can come with us, and you can go over here. And so I did what anyone would do when you just meet a group of people. You're like, I have to prove to you I'm tougher than I really am. So of course I'm going to go with you over here. And yes, I regretted it, but it was also great. So we go over here, and you literally you get down on your hands and knees, and you're crawling under little holes to get into this cave. And we go, and we're getting in, and I'm like, I didn't know I was claustrophobic. I found out. Uh, but I, as I'm in there, you're crawling. Then you get in, and then they tell you, hey, the only way out is the way you came in. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Wait till we're in here. So then we get going, and you're, you're covered from head to toe in mud, and you're squeezing in these little areas, and then they say, hey, you can keep going this way, or you can come over here if, in fact, the disclaimer, you're not a girl. Sorry, ladies. That's what they said to me. You can come over here, and you get in this water, this freezing cold water, and a piece of the cave came down into the water pretty deep, like eight feet deep. And so you take a big, big breath, and I didn't know this. Maybe you guys figured this one out. When the sun can't touch the water, it's really cold. Uh, so when it's in a cave... The water's really, really cold, and so we get into this freezing cold water, and you have to dive down underneath and come out, and they say, hey, if you go in, the only way out is the way you came in. I'm like, again, great. So we did it. We go underneath, and you swim, and it's, it's like crazy, and you're just thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever done, and it was, and we get to this open area where the other group eventually met us, and um, so I guess I could have gone back with them, but they tricked me, but uh, we're sitting in this open space, and the youth minister at the time, he says, hey, turn off your headlamps. And so we turn off the headlamps, and this was the first time in my life I'd ever felt darkness. It was so incredibly dark. And he begins to give this devotion, but you got to remember, he, he was a mover. Like, he's just like, he would move when he would talk, and, he's, and so we're, uh, when he's done, and he gets done praying, we turn our lights back on, we realize he was right next to this ledge. I'm not kidding. Next to a ledge. And when we sh shine the light down into the darkness, uh, you didn't see anything. The light disappeared before you could see anything, so we don't know how deep this was. But the guide grabbed him and pulled him back and said, don't do that. Don't stand there. Don't move. And we were completely blown away, and we were, like, relieved he was still with us. Um, though I was a little mad at him for this whole thing. And, you know, I thought, man, youth ministry, lock these guys up. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry, Jed. And so we, we climb out of the cave, and I'll never forget, we're on the bus, 
And all I could remember, all I remember about being on the bus, I don't remember the content of the conversation, but I remember clearly everybody's exhilaration for this adventure. Like how incredible this was. We'll remember this forever. That was so cool. That water and diving down and man covered in mud and I threw those clothes away and I didn't know I was going to have to throw my shoes away. It was just, it was awesome. Just this incredible experience. And I tell you that because of this. When I think about my everyday life, I don't think of it like that expedition into that cave. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think about, like, every day I get up is an adventure. And I'm on this great adventure, and it's exhilarating, and I'm having these awesome experiences that I'll never forget. But on the flip side, nobody ever wakes up. I don't know of anybody that wakes up and says, man, I just hope today's horrible, right? In fact, I hope I contribute nothing to the lives of other people, and everything goes horribly wrong. And when I come home tonight, I hope I'm in a really horrible mood, and I have a really bad day. Can't wait. Let's get after it. People don't do that. No, but what we do is we, we get into this routine where we feel like life is anything but an adventure. And then we've got this horrible curse that I like to call social media, where you sign on and you look at the adventurous, incredible life of everyone else because they only post what they want you to see, not reality, right? If I put my Instagram feed on the screen right now, what you would see is you would look at it and say, Rob, your kids... Man, you are raising the greatest kids ever. And I would probably agree with you. They're awesome, but not always. Not always. And what you see on my Instagram feed is awesome, and it's adventurous, and Rob's kids are great. What you would see if you came and lived for a week in my house is, Rob, pick it up, dude. The parenting, what's going on? Your kids are crazy. They're, but I love them. They're awesome, and they are good kids, but you see the point. And what happens when we look at everybody else's adventurous, incredible life is we can feel defeated, like beat up. Like, oh man, they're living a great life and I'm not living it. Or you feel envious. What about your spiritual life? What about your walk with Jesus? I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like that's an adventure either. I feel like sometimes I get caught going to church and it's this routine thing I have to do. And even though I wouldn't even say those words, it just feels that way sometimes. I show up here out of obligation sometimes and, and, and you go through the motions and you get home and it's, it's, yes, I know I have to read my Bible and yes, but I've got all these other things going on in my life. I, most of the time in my life every day, I feel pressure to accomplish my to-do list, to keep my boss happy, to keep my spouse happy, to keep the kids in line, feeling like I need to spend more time with the kids but not sure where that time's gonna come from. I've gotta pay the bills, clean the house, fix the car, do the laundry, do the dishes, find time to maybe read a couple verses that pop up onto my Bible. Then I got to go to this parent-teacher meeting. Then I got to go to another business meeting. Then I got to go to my discipleship group. Then I go to church. Then I get home. I sit down completely and totally exhausted. And oops, I should probably pray too. Maybe I'm the only one. Anything but an adventure, right? Like, Rob, my spiritual life, my, my everyday life feels like anything but an adventure, man. It feels more like a scavenger hunt, but the problem is I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking for. That's why I love this series we're walking into, studying the life of Paul. Because as I look at the 13 letters that he wrote and, and his story in the book of Acts, I come to realize this guy took this invitation from Jesus to follow me. When Jesus says, walk this way, take these steps, give your life to this, it was an invitation to an incredible adventure. The problem is many of us have lost sight of the power of that invitation, and what it really meant to follow him and to take a step in his direction and how adventurous that life really can be. But I'm excited because Paul's life will speak to our lives clearly that what Jesus invited us to be a part of was an incredible adventure. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10? He says this, 
He said, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose, one of the reasons I'm here on earth, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. You're like, Rob, I know Jesus restores my relationship to the, my relationship to the Father, and, and he reconnects me with God, and, and, and I'm going to have eternity, and that's awesome. I'm like, yes, that's all good, and that happens after my funeral, but what about right here and right now? And Jesus says, I want you to have an incredible life right here, right now, in this life. I've got this uncle he raised me. I love him, but he always says, man, you Christians, he's not a Christian. He says, Christians just consider Jesus an afterlife insurance policy. You're just waiting to get to heaven. I'm like, no, you've missed the invitation. You missed it. Jesus invited us to be a part of an incredible adventure. So I've been praying for our church. I went to this thing down in Brown County last night and got to drive back by myself and just sitting here driving and thinking about New Hope and, and about this series we're getting ready to walk into and uh, the impact of this, this scripture, these passages can have on our lives. I'm beginning to pray for those of you that feel worn out with the everyday parts of your life. You're just tired of going through the routine. And those of you who spiritually feel like, man, following Jesus for me has been anything but an adventure. I sure would like it to, though. And I prayed that prayer over our church and revisit this passage, and I just think, man, Paul's life's going to speak clearly to us. What does it mean to walk this way, to follow Jesus? Now, as we get started into the passage this morning in Acts chapter 9, before we get started, I want to give you a working definition that I think will help us with this passage of Scripture, but will also help you in the coming weeks through this entire series. And we're going to define how the Bible says, uh, what the Bible says faith is, biblical faith. And the working definition I want to use is going to come from a scholar named John Castling. He says this about faith, biblical faith. Biblical faith is, I believe the facts about Jesus, I trust the promises of Jesus, and I obey the commands of Jesus, all coming together. I want you to consider this. See, many people think that faith is simply mere intellectual assent. Like, I just, here's the facts, I believe them, I'm done. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that, yes, that's a part of it. I'm presented with the facts. I trust that the facts are true. I believe the facts. I have belief in those facts about Jesus. But I also trust the promises that haven't come yet, that, that he made. And so I trust in the promises that Jesus made because he's already provided proof that he keeps his word. And so I believe the facts, I trust the promises, and because of that, my life is changed. Because of that, I have a response to this truth. I don't just sit back and wait for this truth. My life responds to this truth if, in fact, I do have faith that this is true. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, on Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at the first uh, 18 or 19 verses in the, in the chapter. But before we get there, I'm going to give you a little background on the Apostle Paul. There's three times in the book of Acts that he shares his testimony. Here's what I mean by testimony. Three questions. You want to know, how do I write my testimony? Three questions. What was life like before Jesus? How did I come to know Jesus? What difference has Jesus made in my life? Those three things. Three different times. Acts chapter 9 that we're going to look at now. Acts chapter 22. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. It's going to be Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 16. And Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul shares his testimony. Here's why that's important. Because each time he's adding, he's giving us more facts. So you piece them together and you learn a little bit about this guy before we get to our passage. Here's some of the things we learn about the Apostle Paul that I want you to know about. Saul, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. Forgive me for that. You're like, well, he was Saul and you need to speak of him as he was Saul before he became Paul. No, okay? Uh, so just stick with me. I, it's, it's going to be interchangeable. So here's the things you learn. He's born in Tarsus shortly after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Right? So that's, that's about the time he was born. 
His family then moved to Jerusalem. And this is so important for you to understand about this guy. When he moved to Jerusalem, he began to become a very prominent student. He had a gift for education. He began to learn very quickly. As a matter of fact, he'll tell us that he learned faster than anybody else his age. He, He excelled above everyone else when it came to education. Very intelligent. He caught the eye of the most well-known rabbi. A rabbi is just a Jewish teacher. He caught the eye of the most well-known rabbi in the area, Gamaliel. Gamaliel said, I want you to be my pupil. I want you to be my, my prized student. And sure enough, Saul became his prized student. Began to study under him, spend time with him. And he eventually would follow in his father's footsteps and he became a Hebrew-speaking Pharisee. It's important. He could speak multiple languages, but a Hebrew-speaking Pharisee. Not only that, he tells us that he became a Pharisee of Pharisees. So not only did he become a better student than all the other students, but when he actually became a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee above all of the other Pharisees. In addition to that, okay, this is, look, this is free for coming. Saul's that kid that you grew up hating because everything he touched turned to gold. You know who I'm talking about. Don't say them out loud. Don't point. But you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I, I have mine. You got yours. Everything that kid touches turns to gold. That's him just rising the prominence in the Jewish community, but here's the deal, he's also a Roman citizen. So he had good standing with the political uh, leaders of the day too. So he's got all of this incredible stuff. And then he was a tent maker to make money as a trade. So he's got all this incredible things going for him, rising the prominence, rising with reputation, rising with power, rising with influence. He's got the total package. This is Saul. Now he hears of this group of people following this carpenter from Galilee who, rumor has it, resurrected from the dead. And he looks at that and says, that's not happening on my watch. And he begins, in his own words, to develop a rage. The Bible uses the term in Greek that literally means an overcoming rage toward that group of people. He wanted to end it before it got bigger. And the reason he wanted to end the growth of Christianity, that's another thing to put on his accomplishment, another notch on his belt. That group of Christians that were growing... I single-handedly put them, put them away. So he gets this goal in mind, and he starts to go after these Christians. That's why when you're reading your Bible, you get to Acts chapter 7, and you see the first Christian uh, person who's unjustly tried and executed simply for following Jesus. And who's standing there signing off on the whole deal? Saul. So these Christians begin to fear this guy because he even describes it in a- Acts chapter 26 as having almost a tunnel-visioned focus on stopping these Christians. It's all he wanted to do. So now we pick up his story, and we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. If you have a Bible, if not, it should come up on the screen for you. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a a little bit, and then I'm going to teach a little bit. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'm going to teach a little bit. And when we get to the end, I'll give you four things to take with you. So just bear with me. If you like taking notes, this would be a good time. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, this prominent, well-known, powerful person, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way or any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Here's this. He has become the most prominent persecutor of the church. His reputation preceded him. Before he got to Damascus, they knew he was coming, and they were terrified. As a matter of fact, Josephus, an early um, first century historian, Jewish historian, said that at the time in Damascus, there was roughly maybe 15,000 or so Jewish people living in uh, Damascus, living in the city. Here's why that's important. Because all of these Christians, or Jews, that became Christians are now fearing this persecution. They flee to their family members in Damascus. Well, Saul gets word 
says they're going to go hide out in Damascus. I'm going to go get paperwork. And now he's an authorized vigilante. And he's going to go to Damascus and he's going to make sure these Christians pay. Make sure this growing movement is put to an end. He's going to bound them up. Men, women, children, he's going to pull them back. In the third telling of his testimony, Paul, he, he called himself obsessed and enraged with this. He was consumed by it. So much so, he says, that he would go to foreign cities just to hunt out these Christians. This guy's on a murderous rampage. He wants them done. And they know he's coming, so they're terrified. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Three things happen here real quick. He says this light comes, and it shines all around him. It's not a light that he saw that blinded him. It's a light that he was surrounded by, is the way he describes it. Similar to the, the way I described the darkness in that cave, he is surrounded by light. So powerful, number two, that he falls onto the floor. It's so, it just overwhelms him, this light, and he falls on the floor. The other guys are scattering to get up when they hear him talking, but they don't know how, what, what's going on because they don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic the way Jesus would have been talking to Saul. So now Saul's talking to him. Remember that educational background comes out at this moment. And they're talking and dialoguing. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the, I'm the one that you are persecuting me. Now, picture this. Picture Saul in that moment. This is like one of those moments in your life where everything starts to happen in slow motion. And you're rethinking everything. I want you to think about this. Everything this guy gave his life to up until this point is now in question. When he hears Jesus' voice, imagine his mind is just blown. His mind is exploding with questions in this moment. Completely overwhelmed. Can't see anything. Hearing Jesus. And what do you think he's asking himself in that moment? Oh no. Could it be true? The rumors. Did, did he really resurrect? Everything I've given my life to. What? I was chasing after a lie. And this is the truth. Stephen, oh no. I shouldn't have let him die. And what's going on? And he's completely overwhelmed in this moment. His whole worldview is going to begin to shift. He's not converted yet. Don't misread it. He's confronted with the truth. He's confronted with this. And Jesus says, now you have to get up. You have to go to Damascus where I'll teach you what you have to do next. Well, you'll learn what you have to do next. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The companions, they're blown away. They just say, okay, well, we were already headed to this guy's house. Let's go here. They go to the house of a guy named Judas where they were already headed to begin with. They drop him off there, and he sinks into this deep depression. For three days, he won't eat, he won't drink. He's blinded. He's left to contemplate everything he'd given his life to and everything Jesus was now calling him to, his whole world being turned upside down, his whole worldview being shifted, everything he thought he knew not being true, and everything that he was against now becoming the truth, and he's overwhelmed by it. Now, technically, he's not converted on the road. He's not converted until Ananias comes later, three days later, and here's some narrative clues to help support that idea. I just want you to, to know this. If you're taking notes, write this down. For three days he fasts and he's mourning what's taking place. As soon as he's converted, later on, he stops mourning. The mourning is lifted. He's no longer in this depression. It's lifted from him. Ananias arrives 
And he promises Saul two things in verse 17, chapter 9, verse 17. Two things. He says, you will regain your sight and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He hadn't received it yet, but you will receive the gift. His sight is restored when the scales fall off his eyes. His forgiveness is linked to his baptism when Ananias says this in chapter 22, verse 16. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 22, verse 16 is yet another time where Paul was telling his story. And in chapter 2, verse 22, verse 16, Ananias, after presenting the gospel to him, says, now you must have a response to this truth. You believe the facts and you can trust the promises. Now you must obey to make faith whole, to have a complete response to the completed work of Jesus. He says this, get up, Saul. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. So when people say, hey, when the Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it does say that. But the best interpreter of Scripture is what? Scripture. And Acts chapter 22, verse 16 tells us what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What does that mean? It says it means that in baptism your sins are washed away and you are calling upon his name, receiving this gift that he's offered you. After his baptism, he finally eats. He breaks the fast, which was symbolic of the mourning that he was going through. He breaks that fast. He breaks the mourning. It's lifted, and he begins his mission, which would ultimately lead him to become the greatest missionary in history of the world. Verse 10, though, back in our story, says this. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, most creative street name ever. And at the house, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, Ananias has a lot to be scared of in this moment. And when faced with this fear, I want you to go to Saul. You know, the guy that's murdering all the Christians, you being a Christian, go to him. I want you to do this. He's terrified. He's not looking forward to In fact, he does what a lot of us do when we're scared to obey the Lord. We inform the Lord that maybe he forgot something, right? Hold, hold on, Lord. Ananias says, hold, hold on, Lord. Creator of the universe, let me uh, re-inform you. This guy's killing all the Christians. So, so maybe I misunderstood you, Lord. Maybe instead of going to him to share the gospel, I should go shank him because I'm down for that. You get, let's go get something sharp and we'll do this together. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, you don't understand. I'm it's his fear speaking. And Jesus says, no, go. I want you to go. Now, he's not just scared of Saul. He's also scared of Judas because here's the deal. Saul was coming from Damascus, headed toward the home of Judas to stay there to then present these papers to then start arresting and killing Christians. So logic has to kick in here. If Judas was going to welcome Saul pre Black, flashing light, he, that's where he was headed to begin with. Whose side of this for Jesus or kill the Christians argument do you think Judas is on? So when he says, go to the street called straight, immediately 
Immediately, Ananias knows that's where all the government buildings are, that's where their homes are, and Judas lives there, and he wants the Christians dead too. I'm a little nervous about going to see Saul and Judas. This is insane, but he goes. He goes. He follows what the Lord told him to do. And he says, the Lord says, he's going to have to know what he's supposed to suffer for my name's sake. Now, I want to remind you this. As we get into this series, Paul suffers a lot. He goes through a lot. But don't mistake this. His suffering was not just a consequence of what he had done. God's not punishing him with the suffering. No, his suffering and his tragedy became the best platform for his proclamation of the gospel. Through his suffering, through his difficulty, he got an audience that without that suffering and difficulty, he wouldn't have got any other way. Every time he suffers, he looks for an opportunity in his pain, in his tragedy, to proclaim Jesus because now somebody who didn't listen before because of my suffering will listen now. That's why God told Ananias, Paul would suffer for his namesake. Moving on here, verse 17, he says, So Ananias departed and entered the house. He goes, he walks into the house. Just imagine how scared this guy is walking into this house. So easy to overlook that when you just read your Bible. Just imagine the emotions going through this guy as he trembles walking into this house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened you know in the new testament conversion doesn't happen in dreams and visions it happens when a person is there proclaiming the truth of the gospel and people respond to that truth this is what we get right here he comes he brings the complete gospel message and paul responds to that gospel message in christian baptism and it's this conversion that would lead him from persecutor to preacher from murderer to missionary. It's this same experience in our lives that can take us from having this horrible past to having a former life and an incredible future. Four things I want to give you real quick that you can take away from this I think we can learn. The first one is this. Paul counted the cost for following Jesus. He counted the cost. Think about this. You know his history now, right? Think about it. Choosing Jesus and choosing to follow Jesus cost him everything, every friend he ever had, his family members, all the power he had, all the prestige he had, the reputation that he had, people coming to him. It feels really good to be depended upon. And when people come to you for advice all the time, that ended. Now people wanted to see him killed and people wanted to chase him down. It cost him everything to follow Jesus and he still says it was absolutely worth it. When writing a letter to the church at Philippi, he said, all those things I achieved, every achievement I had, I count it rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to him. It was worth every single minute of suffering that I've endured for him. Friends, I think all too often we sugarcoat the gospel. And we don't challenge our brothers and sisters to count the cost of following Jesus. Look at the culture we live in. It's not going to get easier to be a Jesus follower. My question is, have you counted the cost? And have you decided it's worth it? Liddy's sitting front row up here. I'm not going to bring all the attention to you. You're okay. She was baptized after third service last week into Christ. And before her baptism, I sat with her and I got to ask her. I said, have you counted the cost? said, when you make this decision, you got an enemy who's coming after you. And he's going to work overtime. And she said, I've counted the cost and I'm ready. I know it. The war has been won. We still fight battles, but the war has been won. Have you counted the cost? Paul did. As we look at what he did after counting the cost, it's 
pretty incredible. Number two, Paul reprioritized everything around Jesus. He reprioritized everything in his life around Jesus. I'm reading a business leadership book right now, and in that book, it talks about this word priority. They do a word study on it. They say, hey, it, was, it really appeared in the English language. Uh, it was used commonly in the 1400s, like you would use this word priority. But here's the fascinating thing about this word. It was never pluralized until the 1900s. I find that fascinating. People didn't speak of having priorities. They had a priority. They had one priority, one thing they gave themselves to, one thing that was most important. And all other things fell underneath that or were revolved around that, but that was centerpiece, one priority. We didn't have multiple priorities. And I love that. In my, I buy a new Bible every year. Every January, I buy a new Bible, and I, I'll mark it up, and I'll read it, I'll preach, and I'll teach from it, and, be, and then at the end of the year, I put it down, and I buy another one. It's just something I like to do. But on the inside cover of each Bible that I buy, I have one, two, three, four. Now, a lot of people don't like using lists. It works for me. A bullseye may be even better because everything comes out around it. That's fine. Whatever you got to work... But in mine, I write, I write four things. Number one, I write uh, Jesus. He's my number one priority, Jesus. And I have to have that reminder. And look, here's the deal. For the rest of my life, I need that reminder. Number two, I put my smoking hot wife, Sarah. I don't put that, but I put Sarah. She's awesome. She's, she's just so much, I'm just all in with that girl. And, and so she's there. Number three, I put my kids and I list their names out. Number four, I put New Hope. Here's what happens throughout my year. Number four oftentimes wants to jump to number one. <laughs> it's all your fault. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> number four oftentimes wants to climb that list. But I oftentimes want to put number three at number one. I oftentimes put number two at number one. And I need to come back to this reminder, like the Apostle Paul, when he walked out of Judas's house he said, I've got one priority in life from this day on, and it is to make him famous, and that's it. Everything else I'm a part of falls underneath that objective, make disciples of Jesus. And I need that reminder of my own life. I need to flip to that often and say, huh, making sure I'm keeping number one, number one, as a singular, not plural, priority. The Apostle Paul reprioritized everything around Jesus. Number four, or number three, Paul didn't run from his past but he no longer allowed his past to define him. Friends, too many Christians are running away from their past. They're running away from it, trying to ignore it like it didn't happen. Or too many Christians are still saying, I love Jesus, I've accepted Jesus, I'm walk- I, I understand grace, but you're not walking in grace because your past still defines you. And you play the victim card often. Paul understood my past. I have a former life. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, you can read this later. He says, you know of my former life, how I used to persecute and destroy the Christians. What he's saying in that moment is two things. One, that's a reality. I did that. That's a part of my past. But at the same time, he's saying, because it's a former life, that no longer defines me. And I can talk about it, and I can recognize that it happened. But from now on, Jesus has redeemed that in me. And because of that, he gets all the glory. My question to you is, as you follow Jesus, have you, have you come to grips with your past and allowed it to be your past, recognizing that it happened and it was there, but that you now have a former life because Jesus resurrected from the dead? Number four, Paul didn't pursue discipleship alone. 
Never did it alone. He walked out of that house and immediately went to the apostles and said, I've got to link arms with my brothers. I can't do this alone. And he linked arm in arm with his brothers and sisters and said, I've got this mission that God's given me to go to the Gentiles, but I can't go by myself. I need your help. And he links arms with them and they go together. I, I'm a huge fan of, of our military. Uh, in the US. I love it. I can't get enough of it. I watch all the movies I can, like American Sniper, all these other movies. Man, I just want to watch it all. I want to, and I watch those shows where you get to watch the obstacle course that all the military people go through, and I'm like, oh, I want to try that. I'd fail miserably, but I just want to try it. That's awesome. I have so much respect for them, the sacrifice they make, what they go through, what they put themselves through just for us. I love it. If you're like, dude, don't talk about that in church. Dude, get over it. I'm going to talk about it in church because I appreciate it, and I love it, and I'm grateful for it. I absolutely am. And, and Wednesday night, I had this bad flu bug this week. On Monday, I got really sick. Tuesday, I got really better. Wednesday, it hit me again. It's the most awkward, frustrating flu bug ever, right? I'm sitting having a pity party on Wednesday night at my house. No one's home, and I'm like, oh, I'm sick. I don't want to be sick. And guess what movie comes on? For the first time on network television, Lone Survivor. And I'm watching this military movie about this SEAL team that went to, to battle, only one of them came out, and the damage it did to that man because he lost his brothers in arms. But the incredible sacrifice that was made, and I'm just blown away, and I get teary-eyed every time I watch that. And I send our music minister, Matt, a text. I said, I'm homesick. Lone survivor's on. Not allowed to be sick anymore. <laughs> like, get over it, little girl. Uh, and again, ladies, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm, I know I'm going to hear about that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm watching that, and I'm like, man, I'm so moved by it. So I did a little bit of reading. I found this article in the Wall Street Journal from 2011 from this, these seals. And one of their descriptors is this. I love this. They say, hey, almost all the men who survived Hell Week, and they call that the week leading up to being uh, called a Navy SEAL, possessed one common quality, all these guys. Even in great pain, faced with the test of their lives, they had the ability to step outside of their own pain, put aside their own fear, and ask, how can I help the guy next to me? They had more than just a, a fist of courage and physical strength, though they did have that. They also had a heart large enough to think about others, to dedicate themselves to a higher purpose. I love that. Think about that with Paul. I look at the Apostle Paul, I'm like, that's the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm going to link arms with my brothers, and I'm going after the mission that God's called me to, and I won't do it by myself. I've got to do this with my brothers and sisters. And so my question to you is, are you trying to pursue Jesus by yourself? Are you in a discipleship group? Do you have accountability from other believers? Paul did. Paul had the accountability of the apostles, but he also offered accountability to them. In Galatians chapter 2, he calls Peter out on his sin. They went back and forth, but they knew we can't do this together because we're not perfect. Close with this. I got an email this week from someone in our church. It's a testimony. I love it. I want to read it to you, and I hope you find encouragement in it because, man, I, I, the, only, the word that came to mind when I read this email, I thought, what an adventure. Check it out. Hey, Rob, a friend of mine and myself were currently participating in Team Expansion's 30-Day Discipleship Challenge, which is an awesome thing. It's no joke, though. So if you're going to do it, moredisciples.com. But if you're going to engage in that, beware. It's a, it's a big commitment. So we're doing it during the month of uh, April. Each day you receive an email with a short devotional and an assignment or a task to complete for the day, all focused upon the concept of disciples making disciples. Some challenges are easier, and other, like watching a video or studying a passage, but others get really hard due to the unplanned commitments and, and the time that's required. So one of last week's challenges was to 
Put yourself in the context where you can hear someone's story and intentionally enter that conversation for the sake of the gospel. It was one of my busiest days that I've had in so long, and I made the poor choice that I would just skip that one and apologize to my accountability partner that I decided to do this with. All day I felt guilty about it. Well, that night they had something at New Hope, and he went to it, and there was music and a devotional, and he came and he heard that, and he just said he felt so terrible. He said, I felt terrible that I had so blatantly skipped the previous challenge, even without praying for God to open up an opportunity. So sitting there without wallowing, uh, sitting there while wallowing in my own self-esteem loss, I prayed that God would give me one more chance to obey that day. And this is at night. So I'll summarize the rest. He said he went and got on 65 North, headed toward his house, and he gets on the interstate, and he sees a guy on the side of the road, a younger guy. I'm not advocating that every one of you leave here and stop and pick up hitchhikers, so don't hear that. But for him, he did. And he stopped, and he said, hey, man, come on, get in. And he listened to the guy's story immediately. And the guy said, hey, I'm headed to... Uh, Chicago, ultimately to Minnesota. I was just at my mom's funeral. I just genuinely ran out of money trying to get home. And so he's like, dude, I can't drive you to Chicago, but there's a Greyhound station in downtown Indy. And he drove him there. He shared the gospel with him. He bought him a ticket to Chicago, but realized it didn't leave till the next day. So he got him a hotel room. He went the extra mile. Got him a hotel room, got him a bus ticket, shared Jesus with him in that moment, gave him a Bible, told him he loved him, asked him to say, he said, hey, would you just call me Call me when you get there to Minnesota, ultimately to Minnesota. I want to hear how you're doing, man. Here's how he closes it out. He said, we prayed together. I booked his room for the night and said goodbye. Before I left, he asked somewhat sheepishly, why'd you do this for me? I wasn't prepared for the question, but the Holy Spirit blurted out something along the lines of, well, Jesus died for me, man. And this is the least that I can do for you, brother. Consider it a gift from God. And if you can, forget that I'm even a part of the equation. We hugged and I drove home. I never received the phone call from John that promised he'd, that he would give me when he got home. But I'll tell you what, man, I slept well that night. No guilt, no hunches, just satisfaction. Satisfaction in the fact that Jesus considers us, us even remotely worthy of representing him to others and being included in his kingdom work. I'll not be skipping any more discipleship challenges because our God more than proves himself worthy of our trust. If we step out in obedience in faith, he absolutely will bless that step with more opportunities. I don't know about you guys. When I read that, I just thought, what an adventure, man. Not an adventure where you think I have to have all the results, but an adventure that says every day I wake up, Jesus wants me to partner with him in changing lives. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on that adventure. I want every day to be described as an adventure because every day he completely blows my mind and uses me in the lives of other people. My prayer is we would have a church full of people like this guy who just said, yes, Lord. You want to take me on an adventure? I steal the response of Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray.